0: Welcome to the Safe Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maria Lee, General Practitioner and Medical Advisor in the health regulation sector. I analyze medical errors and clinical incidents for a living. And along the way, I've learned a lot about the principles and the mechanics of safe practice, which I'm hoping to share with you in this podcast. I hope you stay tuned. And if you learn something, please pay it forward and share your knowledge with other clinicians. That way, pod by pod, we can build a safer healthcare system together. Of course, the content and opinions expressed in this podcast are entirely my own and are not the views of any of the organizations or bodies with which I am affiliated. So without further ado, let's get stuck into some safe practice. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Safe Practice Podcast. Today's episode is on patient-centered care, what it is, what it isn't and a couple of eye-opening examples that really drive the point home. Patient-centred care is one of those buzzwords in healthcare these days. We all know we should be doing it, but dig beneath the surface and you might be surprised to find that it's not always a well-understood concept. And so that's why I'm here today, to define it, to clarify some misconceptions, so that at the end of this episode, we can all leave with no doubt as to what patient-centred care looks like. So, what is patient-centred care? Well, Firstly, let's start with what it isn't. Patient-centered care isn't doing what we think is best for the patient without considering their context or their preferences, even if what we think is best is as per medical guidelines or is objectively the most up-to-date treatment available for that condition. Patient-centered care also isn't dismissing a patient's concerns without adequate exploration, consultation, and explanation. So, what does patient centered care look like? It looks like eliciting and exploring what's important to the patient, even if what's important to the patient is not important to us. It's giving adequate explanation, giving the patient time to digest our explanation, formulate and ask questions, and answering those questions pitched to the patient's level of understanding. It's informed consent, it's shared decision making. We bring the knowledge and the patient brings their values. And ultimately, it's respecting a patient's autonomy, even if we disagree with their choices. In short, patient-centered care is making decisions with patients, not making decisions for them. Now, it goes without saying that this episode is referring to patients who have decision-making capacity, but thankfully that is most patients most of the time. Now at this point some of you may have some reservations about this shared decision-making model. Surely you might be thinking, surely with all of our knowledge and all of our training as health professionals, we are best placed to know what is best for this patient. Now if you are thinking this way, let me challenge you with a couple of thought experiments. Let's say that you are building your dream house. You hire the best architect in the country to help you design it. But Instead of sitting down with you and your family and talking to you guys about your lifestyle, your family composition, how you practically use the home, what you like and don't like in terms of functionality and design, this architect just decides to submit plans to the builder based on what they think is the best house design for you. How would you feel about that? Or let's say you're planning your dream wedding and you hire the best wedding planner in town. But instead of sitting down with you and your partner to find out your vision for your big day, your likes and your dislikes, this wedding planner simply picks the venue, the food, the decorations, and what you and your partner will be wearing on the big day, based on what they thought was best for you. How would that sit with you? Now, if that sounds ridiculous, then the thought of non-patient-centered care should be equally ludicrous. We're not dealing with bricks and mortar or cakes and dresses, We're dealing with people's well-being and sometimes we're dealing with people's lives. At the end of the day, it's the patient's reality. It's their treatment journey, it's their suffering, and it's their quality of life on the line. Therefore, it follows that the patient should play an active partner role in deciding what happens to them and the outcome that they desire. And our role as their healthcare practitioner is to provide them with sufficient information and guidance to allow them to make an informed decision and then down the track to facilitate treatment. To use an aviation analogy, even the most skilled pilot in the world is not doing a good job if they're flying their passenger to a destination that the passenger doesn't want to go to. So that's the theory, but practically, how do we practice patient-centered care? Now, what I'm about to say is so simple, you might just laugh, but simple doesn't mean easy. And to do this well not only requires a shift in mindset, but it requires empathy, consistent application, and situational awareness. When we boil it down to the fundamentals, there are really only three ingredients to this patient-centred care thing. The first ingredient is listen. If we listen to our patients, and by that I mean really listen, listening to understand rather than listening to respond. Quite often, our patients will tell us what is important to them. For example, doctor, I can't book my procedure yet because I have to look after my sister who's going through chemo. Or, hey, I can't do 30 minutes of moderate-intensity exercise three times a week because I'm a single mum and my child still wakes up three to four times overnight, so I'm barely getting through the day as it is. The second ingredient is we need to observe. We need to look for our patient's non-verbal cues. If someone looks visibly uncomfortable or reluctant or downright concerned or fearful when we're discussing a certain topic, tap into it. We might say something like, Hey, you don't look like you like the sound of that. What part of what we've just discussed do you have concerns about? And last but not least, we need to ask. Make it a habit of rounding off consultations or discussions by saying, Hey, is there anything that we haven't covered that is important to you or that you want to ask or let me know about? And this process, this listen, observe, ask process, isn't always a one-off process. Sure, sometimes it can be, but in some contexts, it may take a period of time and multiple consultations for all of the patient's concerns to be covered. Now, this is not because patients are intentionally being difficult and withholding information. It's simply because sometimes patients forget to ask things in the heat of the moment, Sometimes there are just too many concerns or issues to cover in one sitting. Or sometimes the ever-moving dial of someone's healthcare trajectory generates new conundrums and new concerns as time goes on. So if we go back to our architect or wedding planner analogy, it's not practical to expect a homeowner or a couple to air all of their preferences and concerns in one consultation. So why should it be any different in healthcare? Often... Patient centered care takes time. It's a bit like Shrek. It has layers like an onion. In fact, if a patient keeps coming back to you time and time again to reveal more layers, that's a sign that you're successfully building trust and rapport, which is definitely a good thing. What isn't often articulated about patient centered care is that it's not always just for the benefit of the patient there are actually benefits for us as practitioners as well. If it's done well, that is. If it's done poorly, there can be risks for both the practitioner and the therapeutic relationship. To illustrate, let's look at the domains of patient compliance, patient satisfaction, and harm to the patient. Now, in terms of compliance, a management plan that does not take into account what's important or feasible to the patient will likely not be complied with, at least not in the medium to long term. In terms of patient outcome, if the management plan that we suggest does not take into account the patient's circumstances or their preferences, then even a technically flawless clinical outcome may not satisfy the patient. And if we don't take into account the patient's personal values and risk tolerance, we run a very real risk of causing harm to the patient, whether that be physical or psychological. And that's something that you'll very clearly see in one of the scenarios that I'll put forward later in this episode. Now, at this point, I feel the need to point something out. Some people think that patient-centered care equates to giving the patient whatever they want. This is actually a very common misconception. And the difference between giving the patient whatever they want and practicing patient-centered care is subtle, but it's a real difference. In contrast to just giving in to the patient and letting them have whatever they want, in patient-centered care, our responsibility as practitioners is to use our knowledge and our training to inform and advise patients of the viable options for their health condition and the relative risks and benefits of each option. And this includes advising patients against unwise options and describing their potential harms. The patient is then able to use this information to make the choice that most aligns with their values and preferences. If I'm going to use a driving analogy, the difference between the two is like the difference between tossing your teenager the keys to the car when they turn 18 and saying, you wanted this for ages, now go for it, and teaching them how to drive safely, and then letting them take the car out independently once they've passed their peas. Now, if all of this is starting to sound very abstract, fear not. I'm going to give you a couple of concrete scenarios. Let's start with scenario one, a scenario that clearly demonstrates the potential harms of not practicing patient-centered care. So in this scenario, a patient sees a healthcare practitioner to discuss contraception. The practitioner undertakes a clinically thorough pre-contraception assessment and makes the clinically appropriate recommendation of a progestin IUD. Now, the patient seems distinctly uncomfortable whenever the word IUD is mentioned and actually asks the practitioner if the pill would be a more appropriate option for her instead. But this practitioner makes a strong recommendation for the IUD and says, look, it's effective, it's long lasting, it's a set and forget option. It is the best option for you. When it comes to the day of insertion, the patient looks extremely nervous and mentions that she's heard some horror stories about IUD insertions and how painful they can be. The practitioner brushes aside the patient's concerns and reassures her that an IUD insertion is usually a very quick and uneventful procedure for most patients. Now, the insertion process does go smoothly from an objective clinical point of view, but it's clear throughout the procedure that the patient found it highly uncomfortable. Nevertheless, after a period of rest, the patient goes home and the practitioner thinks nothing more of the encounter. Unfortunately, a month later, the practitioner receives a formal complaint alleging that the patient felt pressured into having an IUD inserted and that the procedure itself was so painful that the patient is now receiving treatment for PTSD relating to the trauma of the experience. So that's scenario one, a cautionary tale. Now let's turn our attention to scenario two, which illustrates the flip side of the coin when patient-centered care is done right. In this scenario, our patient is a woman who's pregnant with her second child and is planning a cesarean delivery for a previous cesarean. This patient seeks a pre-operative consultation with her anesthetist to discuss her concerns about a previous anesthetic complication. Turns out that this patient had a very unusual reaction to her spinal anesthetic the last time she gave birth via caesarean. The morphine in that anesthetic caused her to go into urinary retention. Although the retention did eventually resolve, it was quite a traumatic experience for the patient and she wished to avoid it again at all costs. After listening to the patient intently and then going away and thinking about what to do, the anaesthetist calls the patient back for a second consultation and presents three options for the patient to consider. Option one was to use a different opiate medication in the patient's spinal anaesthetic, one that had a much lower propensity to cause urinary retention. Option two was to use a spinal anaesthetic without any opiate. This lowered the risk of urinary retention even further but the trade-off was that there was a chance the anaesthetic could be patchy, thus causing the patient to perhaps feel some of the pain of being operated on. And option three was to do a caesarean under a general, which had the lowest risk of urinary retention, but would mean that the patient would not see her baby being born and also entailed a higher risk to the newborn of needing neonatal resuscitation. After some discussion, the patient decided that she wasn't going to take any risk with the baby, so that ruled out the general anaesthetic. She also decided that the risk of a patchy spinal block was a much more acceptable risk to her than the risk of post-operative urinary retention. So she chose option two, the no-opiate spinal. On the day of the caesarean, the anaesthetist's worst fear actually came true. The no-opiate spinal wore off halfway through the caesarean, which meant that the patient felt herself being operated on. Unsurprisingly, the anaesthetist was not happy with the outcome. But the incredible thing was the patient's reaction. The patient did not actually find the experience traumatic. Now, sure, she would have preferred to have a fully functioning spinal. I mean, who wouldn't, right? But the decision to have that type of spinal associated with the risk of having a poorly functioning block, that had been her decision to make. She, knowing all the information, made an informed choice based on what was important to her. And so when it came to crunch time and a complication occurred, she took ownership of it and she was not upset about it. In fact, this particular patient bought the anaesthetist a gift afterwards and thanked them for doing what was right for her instead of what was routine for them. Now, if at this stage you're starting to wonder whether I've made up some examples just to illustrate the point, I guarantee you that these are real-life scenarios. The first case, the IUD insertion, that happened to a colleague of mine. And the second scenario, that patient who would rather be cut open without a full anaesthetic than risk urinary retention, that patient was me. That's right, I was that patient. You might sit here and think there is no patient in the world who would rather be cut open without a fully functioning anesthetic and that urinary retention is a much more palatable risk in this context but i'm here to tell you that as the patient i made the choice that accorded with my own risk tolerance my own values and my own preferences and yes my choice may seem crazy to other people but to me it made perfect sense So what do these scenarios teach us? Well, they really show us that in the absence of patient-centred care, even textbook management can result in a deeply unhappy patient and serious negative ramifications for the practitioner. And in the presence of patient-centred care, even an objectively undesirable outcome by medical definition can actually result in a happy patient to an extent that the patient can write a podcast episode holding it up as a shining example of patient-centred care. In summary, we as healthcare practitioners do our jobs in order to make a difference to our patients. And only our patients have the right to define what makes a difference to them. And what's important to a patient may just surprise us if we take the time to listen, observe, and ask. The value and the beauty of patient-centered care is that doing it allows the patient to be a partner in their healthcare journey rather than just being the subject of it. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of the patient, it's not hard to understand why patient-centered care is so important. Often in healthcare, it's not the objective clinical outcome that determines whether our patient's experience is good or bad. It's how heard, respected, and valued the patient was made to feel throughout the journey. As Maya Angelou famously said, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. As we get to the end of this episode, this is the bit where I ask you for a favor. If you found the information in this episode helpful, please feel free to share it with your colleagues. The more clinicians that know about these principles of safe practice, the better it stands for all of us, whether as practitioners or as consumers of the healthcare system. And that's it for another episode of the Safe Practice Podcast. Thank you very much for spending some of your time with me today. I'm Dr. Maria Lee, and until next time, stay safe.